episode eight of the Game Off podcast. I'm your co-host Brent, along with Andrew. And this week we got some news on the Switch Lite. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of getting to know each other with a fireside chat. And of course, we got our showcase of the week. This week we're featuring two beautiful Japanese games, uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice and Bloodstained Curse of the Night. I think that's right. That sounds right to I, me. I think that's right. Okay. Without further ado, uh, we got some interesting news on a new version of the switch which is being called the switch Lite. before we get into editorializing this i want to cover <laughs> all of the features so we I, do I this was, i was just <laughs> ready to, already ready to jump in with questions <laughs> what is this who's this no um yeah let's 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 go over the hard facts real quick uh get a, get a stable ground to stand on and then we'll we'll ramble so the Switch Lite, new version of the Switch, uh, very, very popular console by Nintendo, Nintendo Switch, obviously, uh, is releasing a new lighter version, the diet version, I guess you might call it. Um, its features are a 5.5-inch touchscreen, smaller than the regular Switches. It's lighter, no complaints there. It now has a D-pad, that's new. Improved battery life, as they're calling it, but it's only an improvement of about a half an hour. And it no longer has rumble functions, and it no longer has an ability to dock to the TV or play in tabletop mode, which is uh, essentially when you take off the two sides of the switch. So without further ado, Andy, take it away. What do you got to say? Um, the first thing I was concerned with is because I've heard a lot of people with the current iteration of the switch having issues with their joysticks drifting. And having to ha- send those in to be repaired or replaced. Oh. And I've not read anything in the news about this new Switch addressing the drift issue. Whether or not they've, you know, they're using different joysticks, they're using different micro switches, whatever, you know, that is they might have, if they've addressed it in any way. So I'm concerned that you've got, you, this is, uh, you know, not the, not as general and existential of a question, but if my joystick starts drifting, do I have to send the whole thing to be repaired? Uh, I is that, think is that the, the general that idea here? Yes. Yeah. I, I I didn't even think of that, but that's a terrifying thought. It's it's just gone. And if for whatever reason it can't be repaired, all your data is gone too because your save data doesn't live on these cartridges. It lives on the Switch. Yeah, that was another question I was going to ask. Is um, if the idea here... Because the cynical thing I saw was that this was basically being trotted out because they're selling a new mainline Pokemon game and they want families with multiple kids to be able to buy multiple copies of it and not all fight over the Switch. Well, yeah, that that seems pretty on base, honestly. I wouldn't say that's even cynical. It's just uh, devious. (laughs) But so if that's the case, if now you're going to be having multiple Switches per household, more so than you did previously, the really garbage data transfer data backup situation is going to become more of a problem. Yeah. So they, do they have one now? Cause I was under the impression because when they first launched, they straight up said, you can't transfer your data. If your switch breaks for any reason, <laughs> Oh, sorry. I think now as part of Nintendo, I, I I'm going to say whatever I say is going to be wrong here. So because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, so it's guaranteed to be wrong. But I believe that 
the Nintendo, if you have the Nintendo online, part of it is cloud saves for games that make use of them. Um, I'm not sure about that, honestly. And I want to say that it might be only so long as you keep paying for it. And the second you stop paying for it, it disappears and they don't <laughs> save your data. <laughs> and they just drunk junk it. That's yeah. scary. I don't know um, why they have been so reticent to address this issue with any of their hardware in the last 10 years. Yeah. Well, so so as part of this announcement, they said they'd have an improved data transfer service available, which is still sort of scary because it, it, from what it sounded like, it was just going to be sort of a one way thing. Like, all right, we're going to dump all your stuff from here to there. And that's it. It's like, well, I, I want to have two switches. I want one that's connected to my PC and one at work. I was like, wow, this this yeah. isn't for you then. This entire ecosystem is just not for you. Sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, and I mean, that's they've already done that with a lot of the games that allow you online play or allow you know online accounts that mm-hmm. you can't. You just it's an entirely different ecosystem, an entirely different set of accounts on Switch. Like, I really yeah. wanted to play Gems of War back and forth. Which, you know, I know is the most popular game of the year and very important. That's something I'd get worked up over, but I wanted to play Gems <laughs> of War between my phone and my computer and Switch. And Switch is just not in that ecosystem. Had You'd have to create a whole brand yeah. new account. Yeah, it really seems to be up to developers at this point to sort of take it on themselves, like with Fortnite. Like they save everything well, to their servers. So that's well, from, the ideal situation, really. From what I read of blog posts, both from the Gems of War developers and the um, people developing Warframe, it's very much a Fortnite is the exception to the rule that mm. companies like Sony and, and, um, and Nintendo, especially, I mean, you remember the whole thing with how long it took Sony to allow you to bring an account over. Yeah. And that they was just, entirely Fortnite punching them in the gut and saying you have to. Yeah, and that even that took months for yeah. them to, to allow you to bring it over or to not lock your account to yeah. the, to your PlayStation. But we're, we're going off on a Switch rant here, and we should be talking about the Switch Lite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, I'm definitely not impressed by the whole thing. Like, I understand that there's a market for it, but I think my problem with it already lies in what we already covered, which is that, for me, buying a second Switch is more of a curse than anything. Like, what am I going to do with all my saves? Like, I don't want this as my main Switch, essentially. I would want it as a backup switch. I don't know. How does that work with games that you buy digitally? Because I don't actually own any physical switch games. Everything I own has been a digital download. Well, I I assume the saves are still uh, local. Um, But I I mean, your purchases would still exist. So you could re-download the games. But then you have to go through whatever nightmarish process Nintendo has or is concocting to transfer data. And that's, that's, that's cynical of me for sure to say that. But I... Empirically, uh, I it's probably not a good. Yeah, I, I think just judging based on everything, every decision they've made regarding online connectivity has been wrong. <laughs> they have they have just consistently, especially with the Switch, made the wrong call when it came to the online service, when it came to voice chat, when it came to pre- everything has been wrong. Announcing an online service before you've decided what that online service is. Yeah, deciding they're, they're a price quote point. Unquote free games. That you yeah. only get for the month that they're quote unquote free, and that's and, all you get. And they're garbage. <laughs> and they're garbage. It's like you. No one cares about was it City Connection? 
I mean, I've never sakes, once known what those games were because I would never pay for that. <laughs> it, when you that compare them to the, the offerings from PlayStation Plus or Xbox Game Pass or hell, even Ubisoft's offerings, like <laughs> no one cares. I, I know Dr. Mario Mobile just came, but no one cares about Dr. Mario anymore. That's not a that's not a selling point. You can yeah. play Dr. Mario in emulators hosted in browser. <laughs> so I, I I guess I understand it in the same way that I understood the 2DS. Like, it's a way to get moms to buy the second kid a second Switch. Yeah, well, the thing about the, the 2D was, is like, the concept was there. I never once used the 3D part of my 3DS. I no. never got the 2DS because it was smaller and it, the design was ridiculous. It was like a wedge. Yeah, <laughs> so you, like you had to hold it at like an absurd angle to see both screens correctly. So I like if, if it weren't for the des- like the, the idea was there, but the design was just off fucking on a tangent past the moon. Um, similar, <laughs> I guess I could complain about the switch in a similar, similarly pedantic way. It doesn't switch the the name the name switch the thing it was that named it's supposed the to do it switches it doesn't do it doesn't do any switching it does one of the three things that the switch does the eponymously named switch well and it, it continues to show how Nintendo doesn't even believe in their motion controls despite <laughs> forcing them on us in so many of these games like if you're gonna make a version. The second that Nintendo put out a 2DS, it said to me, they don't really believe in 3D. <laughs> they don't believe in it. They, they don't believe that it is a saleable concept because, you know, they gave up on it. Mm-hmm. it they're not requiring any games. It's barely in their first party games anymore. It was the yeah. same with the Wii. The early Wii games were all full of motion control nonsense. And then after the first year or two, they're like, okay, you know what? Maybe it just makes sense to just hold the 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 Wiimote and the nunchuck in your hand and <laughs> use them like a separated controller because, yeah. you know, this isn't a, a, a TV show where we want to show off how active we are. It's just, <laughs> just want to play games. We don't need yeah. these. And so I I feel like if, if they're making devices that aren't going to have those removable controls at all, then it's not... It reinforces my mind that I don't really care about motion controls and they need to stop putting them in their games and pretending that motion controls are a big deal because they're not. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they're they're also in like the opposite, like the opposite situation is being in the the connects, the Xbox one connect situation where they launch a console and make the connect mandatory. And they say, we believe so much in this that we're going to be immovable until they realize that they're not moving goddamn hardware. And they're like, well, yep. you know what? Money talks. So we're going to let's throw away the connect. And then they stop sort supporting it. They cut it out of their main package. They basically pa- not patched it out, but they patched the entire console around it. And then a year later, it wasn't even supported. Um, so like the, the begs the question with the switch is like this. This is probably going to be by the end of its life cycle, the best selling console after the Wii of all time. Hmm why like why are you f- saying that you don't believe in the thing that's actually selling what what's what's your game plan here and i i'm looking at it as just my thought is it's a cynical way to with a game that's primarily for kids and in you know households that are going to have multiple kids that are going to want to play this game together 
um, that this is just a cynical way to sell more. Yeah, that's that's my yeah. thought because it's not maybe it's and, not you know, impressive got, tech. It's period. not impressive tech. It's not. I don't think it's more portable. It's not like you've gone from the DS to the DS Lite, where you're like, wow, yeah, the DS was kind of big for your pocket, but the DS Lite that'll fit in most pants yeah. pockets. You don't it, need to be it, wearing cargo it is, shorts. Yeah, it probably still will not fit in pockets, especially because it has the nubbins. Um, but it is technically smaller and technically has longer battery life and technically is lighter. I don't know why I keep saying technically. These are all improvements. <laughs> and those are all factual things. These are all facts and that makes the, makes the whole package more portable. But, but yeah, it, I mean, it's still, it's still like it still backpack sized. Yeah, it still needs a case. Because this is not, it's not like a DS where you're just going to throw it in a bag. It needs a case. It's going to need, the only thing that it does for at least, you know, for portability for me is it reduces my fear, which I always had carrying mine around that I was going to snap it at the point where the joy cons attach. Yeah. Well, that was always, that'd be scary. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's, that's dead system. So at least if if those are, those are immovable, that's less of a risk. But I mean, you still need to buy a case for it. You still need to carry, carry it around in it. It takes up a lot of space. It's not yeah. DSI portable. Yeah. And even like as, as a touchstone, and I'm probably going to date both of us here, but like the Game Boy Pocket, like that wasn't pocket size. Like it was only pocket size because the fashion at the time was like FUBUs that were five sizes too big. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, those things were still like way too big to be carried around easily. I, yeah, I, I, but anyway, I, that's I don't change. get it. I don't get it. it. It's it's not a big enough improvement yeah. to me on any of the metrics to consider buying a new one. If so, all right. So to play devil's advocate, too, I do at this point primarily play my Switch on the go, and I I, I think that's more of a, a symptom of like how I am as a gamer rather than like the Switch itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I wasn't in this ecosystem already, and I'll pose this question to you as well, if we weren't in the ecosystem already, would this actually be a more appealing console knowing that we would exclusively use it for portability? You know, um, potentially I'm still, I'm still a little worried because you now, like you had with the D the 3ds and the new 3ds, you have a tiered ecosystem. Yeah. And there's now my question is going to be with the new 3DS, it ended up not being a problem because very few developers bit and made new 3DS exclusive games. Mm. The majority of them just went out to the main public, which kind of made me wonder what the hell was the point. <laughs> but the with now we have a tiered ecosystem and I'm wondering, like, how many new games are going to. How many games are out there currently where I'm going to be gimped by the fact that I can't remove the the Joy-Cons? Yeah, the, that is definitely an interesting question because like it, it was sort of already a tiered ecosystem, right? Like uh, Zelda runs at two different uh, resolutions, whether it's docked or handheld. Like I'm sure many right. games do that, but that one comes to mind immediately. Um, so... It, it maybe it is already tiered and they sort of develop towards more towards one or the other. Maybe this causes developers to have to balance it more. And this is Nintendo strong arming them into doing so. Yeah. I would just be afraid of a situation like I got into with Hyrule Warriors on the 3DS 
which is not oh, new man. 3ds exclusive but it's not technically it will run in a new 3ds or an old 3ds but it'll run at 11 frames per second yeah like it, yeah that and that's kind of my thought is like are our games going to come out where it's going to you know you're going to get there and like oh yeah you can't really do couch co-op Mario Kart because you can't take the Joy-Cons off and hold them on their side and just play with your friend. Mm. So now you have to carry around a second set of Joy-Cons, which makes it even less portable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, you know, yeah. they're li- I think the development's going to end up being towards the lowest common denominator, like it always does. Those are the little things that I just I wonder going forward. Like, what's the, what is the the result of this going to be in in two years time? Is this going to be a blip, mm. or is this going to be like now all development is made towards the uh, the Switch Lite? I keep wanting to say 3ds, but towards the Switch Lite, <laughs> and so they don't, you know, and that's fine. But now you don't have as many couch co op games because they're not designed with the idea that you have got two controllers attached to the thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think first party is going to drive that sort of stuff anyway. Like it always does with Nintendo. Like nobody's buying the Switch to play, you know, like Wolfenstein 2 on it. Like, yeah, it's on there, but it looks like a dumpster fire. Um, so, yeah, I guess all that remains to be seen. And I'm just as a very quick side note. I know they're not saying it. I know they're refusing to. But can we just say that 3DS is dead now? Like it. <laughs> this this is the death knell for sure. This has got to be it. They didn't they didn't announce yeah. anything 3DS related at the last E3. I can't think of when the last 3DS uh Nintendo Direct was. Like it, uh last E3. So it's dead, right? Like it, it's yeah, if it's, it's not dead, it's the PS Vita. <laughs> the Vita got strung along for 2 years after they were still showcasing Vita games. So We'll probably not. It'll probably still be "quote unquote" alive for at least another year, if I had to guess. All right. I mean, the, there's a new Persona game that's on that just came out on 3DS a month ago. So there's still games coming out for it. It's just, Any first party games? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you want to move on to our little fireside uh, getting to know you chat? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. Hey, Andy, how you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? Good. How you like those stogies? <laughs> oh, they're just so rich and woody. So woody. <laughs> There's a nice woody flavor oh. to them. Mine too. Mine is actually wood. Yeah. Do you want Andrew? To... Yes. Yeah, no, I'm doing it. Okay. Andrew, what are your thoughts on the Lion King remake or Disney remakes in general? Oh, so... This is one of those things where I've, I've heard a lot of things, but I don't know much about the actual main thing. So, like, I know that a Lion King remake is either in production or has already been released. I don't know which. But I, I know that, that that happened or is happening. I've got some news for you, then. Is, is it already <laughs> been released? <laughs> the reviews just came out for it today. Oh, is it is it well-reviewed? No. Oh. No. Okay. Well... Uh, yeah. I I think that this is it confuses me a little bit and it's one of those things where I always ask like who is this for like I look at the Aladdin remake and the Aladdin remake played so heavily at times into the original Aladdin 
the Disney one from the mid not early nineties, but wasn't mm-hmm. that, and clearly was going to go in other directions in other ways. So why play so hard to the original if you're not actually going to please the fans of the original? Why not just make another Aladdin movie, live action, do something different with it? You want to make a live action Aladdin with Will Smith and different songs and all this other cool stuff? That's great. But it's like Riverdale. Like, why use the Archie comics if you're not going to make a thing about Archie comics? No one who likes Archie comics is going to like Riverdale. Yeah. <laughs> um. So... Like that, that is kind of my take on it. Like it's, if you want to make another, you know, these, these things are out there. It's been 20 some odd years since you made one. You want to make another Aladdin or another Little Mermaid. That's, that's great. But justify the reason for doing it, I guess. Like, yeah. What, what, what's the, what's the point if you're not going to do something new? (laughs) Oh yeah. Other than the monetary reasons, every single version (laughs) has been reviewed inferior to the original. So it's just, I, I don't know what it is about our generation, man, but they eat up nostalgia so hard. I, 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 I think I have the same look. Like, I, I see this, I see what you're trying to do, and it looks just, it looks like the bastardized version of the thing that I, I already know and love. I was more interested in the fact that there was a non- Disney Jungle Book movie that came out and it looked like interesting and had a new take on it than I was with the fact that there was a Jungle Book that could have one-to-one comparisons with the Disney cartoon. And so here's another question that I'm, I'm going to throw out there. And I think this is this relates to video games in a way as well with a movie like the Aladdin remake. Um, obviously it's going to invite comparisons to the original. Is its intended audience people who've seen the original? I I don't know. Because if its intended audience isn't people who've seen the original, then does it matter if it's better than the original? Here's an interesting thought experiment. Okay. How has has your son seen Aladdin? He's seen enough of it. He's seen most of it through clips. He's missed other scenes, but he's seen most of it. Okay. Has he seen other Disney movies? Yeah. Via what medium did he see these? I, through my own media server, my own my own purchasing of of Disney how movies. How much? Yeah. How much did Disney make off of all of? This? Oh, nothing. Not a dime. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of it is Disney trying to milk people that they didn't get into the theaters for the old versions. Hmm. Like I, I saw a lot of these Disney movies, not a lot, but I've seen quite a few of the Disney movies through like the nineties and two thousands in the movie theaters. Like they, they got their money out of me already. I'm not nostalgic for it at all. I mean, I might be in the minority in our generation, but like, I, I assume to some extent, like children that have seen it, you know, on media servers and stuff, see this like huge event and it's a re-release of the thing that they've known and loved for, you know, a handful of years. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not worried about Disney bastardizing their beloved franchise. Oh yeah, like I, those are the people that are going to actually go and enjoy these movies. Yeah, I, I I doubt that any six to ten year old is going to care with any any great amount that they've seen two Aladdin movies and that they are similar, but one is better than the other. Like it's not going to yeah. be in the same way that I didn't like. 
I didn't look at episode one of Star Wars as this thing that needed to be kept in quarantine and, and properly compared to the, it was just another Star Wars movie to watch. I yeah, was, I was excited bam. to watch the Star Wars. That's a perfect example. As a perfect example. If you get in, in that golden uh, age where kids don't really give a shit about the quality of things, they were just happy that it exists. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly you have something that like lasts forever. I was, I, there's so many things that are just dumpster fires that we look back nostalgically on. Like, like Space Jam or The Goonies, which I don't think e- either of those are actually good movies, but I love both of them with a like deep fire. And that and that's what like, and it, it, that's kind of what I was thinking with like the is this I don't know that this is necessarily like a new Aladdin movie is meant for someone in their 30s. I think it's meant for yeah. someone who's like five. And it's is you're right. It's a way to get people who are five years old to pay the money for Aladdin again, because people who are in mm-hmm. their thirties and are raising these five year olds don't need to pay for Aladdin again. So, yeah. like, let's get them in there. And, and so, I, I just I find it very amusing when I see these very detailed breakdowns and hot takes by adults. Which it's fine if adults watch kids' movies and have opinions on that's great. But it's it'd be like if you and I did a two hour breakdown of the latest Neopets game. Like at some point, some <laughs> at some point, our producer needs to come in and say, "Like this game isn't for you." <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! Just play it. The reason that you don't like it is because you're not ten. <laughs> what? Yeah, what? yeah, it's like it. It just it's one of those things. That, Singing, so. It's the same with like you. Know, you see those videos of like adults from Russia try American candies. It's like, well, of course they're going to be shocked by Fun Dip. It's 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 made. <laughs> it's all sugar. It's all sugar made for five year olds. <laughs> so like that's I don't know, that that's my take on it. Is like I they're not for me, but I also don't think the outrage is for me either. Yeah, no, I mean like I, the only one I've wanted to see was Aladdin, and it's because Guy Ritchie directed it. Yeah, and like while he he hasn't been quite the amazing <laughs> director he used to be, he still has interesting spins on things. And the only thing that put me off of that movie were how excited people were with all the one-to-one shots. And then I was like, oh, no. Well, then why Disney got to him. Then why get Guy Ritchie to do it? <laughs> why bring in Guy yeah, Ritchie exactly. if you're doing a one-to-one? Yeah, you get get Guy Ritchie if you want a camera to be flung around in into space and nobody <laughs> understands what's happening in any possible scene. Yeah. That's why you get him. Let's let's jump on to my question. My my question for you is, how do you feel about the act of collecting objects with little or no market value increase, like for only for personal reasons? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, I think there always needs to be a healthy limit with collectibles. Hmm. I think so. Yeah. So I think I think shoot, this was this was a bit barbed. But, um, <laughs> is, is this a has our producer put something in here that's directed to, at you specifically <laughs> yeah thanks to Vry. um yeah I, it's an interesting thing obviously like clutter is is stupid and having too many things is like it, you're just including stressors in your life like just having objects of no value that you can't then on the drop of a dime say I, d- I no longer need this or my investment is complete and I'm satisfied I'm going to sell this off like yeah if you just have a bunch of 
if, if your son's 30 years old and your entire house is wallpapered with his, you know, Crayola scribblings, <laughs> like you're you're a psychopath. To that point, yeah, I mean, it, things should re- have some value, both emotional and uh, value wise after a certain point. And this is a really complicated question that definitely can't be covered in a handful of minutes. But I, I like I, this is going to make me sound strange, but I, I like the the Mary Kondo method where it's like, does this item bring you joy? Yes or no? It's like, well, sometimes like, no, then it doesn't get rid of it. Uh, but you know, that, that, that becomes hard with a collection because like I look, it's an amalgam, well, right? Yeah. You've seen, you've seen my basement. I have a lot of books down here and yeah. it, taken in a vacuum, probably only 20% of these bring me joy on their own. Like, you know, it's a book and it's like, yeah, I don't need to read airframe again. <laughs> and the fact that I own it doesn't really add something to it. But the totality of the collection brings me joy. It, it yeah. feels almost no. like you'd be like if you went through, if you got a box of Legos and went through each individual piece. Does this two by yes. three gray brick bring you any joy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely understand that part of it. It's like if you go and look at my gamer score and you see that I like 100%ed Wally on Xbox 360 and you ask me if I enjoyed that experience, I would say no. <laughs> but the fact that I I completed it brings me joy. <laughs> um, <laughs> through all the trials and tribulations that come along with playing Wally, one of the last uh, full game release tie-ins ever. They, they sort of stopped doing that after the 360 generation. They were like, you know, we're, we're not going to release a $60 game that is just a shitty version of our movie. No, it's embarrassing. It's, they all just they just do all mobile games now. Yeah, mobile games and some other random games. There's there's a Ben-Hur game for the remake that didn't do well. The game wasn't very good. <laughs> Wait, are you, are you saying the remake that. didn't do well or the game didn't do well? Because I think those are both true. Oh, neither. Yeah. <laughs> neither, but the Ben-Hur game was free at least. Okay. And I don't think it's available anymore. But anyway... Yeah, no, I, I think they things have to have a strong emotional tie. I mean, being faced with moving halfway across the country sort of begs a lot of questions like, like, yeah, I've read every Twilight book in, in my teens, I should preface. Um, I have all of them still. Like, do I need to keep them just because I've read them? Will I ever read these again? Like, fucking no, of course I'm not. I'm an adult. But at the same time. Get rid of them. But at the same time, they came down with me. No. <laughs> No, yeah, it's it's a complicated question. I have I have a lot of swirling thoughts. Anyway, what do you what are your thoughts on that? I, I never like collecting things was something that I always thought would be fun, but I never had anything I wanted to collect as a kid. Mm. Um, like I tried collecting baseball cards, but I didn't care about baseball, so that became very difficult. And <laughs> I tried collecting. <laughs> Who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of it. Like, is he worth? Yeah, that was it. Is this guy worth anything? No, Andy, no one cares about Kenny Lofton. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, well, I got it. I remember I had, a, I had a baseball card of Bill Clinton throwing out the first pitch at something or other. That was pretty cool. Fuck? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I was excited because he... That's probably worth a million dollars now, well, Andy. Well, that's... Whatever one of my neighbor kids got all... Neighborhood kids got all my baseball cards when I was sick of them. He's going to hopefully still have it make a ton of money. And I never really collected oh, anything else. I, I've got a bunch... Of, like, I collect... I guess books. I buy a lot of books and I buy a lot of books of certain types, you know, just because I like having them. 
but that's mm. that's the closest, and that's something I only picked up in the last you know ten years or so. As a kid, I just yeah. I just wanted to own games and play video games all the time. But again, you know, Same. couldn't afford yeah. that. <laughs> no, yeah, I think the first thing I technically started collecting were Xbox three hundred and sixty games because I don't know, like I, I that that was around when I had started working for a living and like my expenses weren't too bad. So I was just like, I would wait for sales and stuff, but I would always buy games physically. And I ended up with like hundreds of 360 games and like the dumbest games, like Wally, <laughs> like the Simpsons game. God, what, what have you? And since then I've been like, I, I, this is, just, this is a bad idea. I hate every time I have to move it, it takes up like three, like, huge Amazon pantry boxes and it weighs more than like a 12 year old boy. I, I, you know, I don't know how much a 12 year old boy weighs. I should say. Well, cancel. Well, you know what? I've DeVry, cut that out. I've got a, I've got a three year old. You can multiply it by four. Oh, okay. That's I fine. assume that math works. Yeah. Yeah. Growth's not exponential during like the pubescent <laughs> years. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's complicated. I've definitely, I'm, I think I'm in the rehabilitative portion of just like semi, not not hoarding. Hoarding's strong word. Like, I just don't want any stuff anymore. I went from wanting some stuff to wanting next to no stuff. Yeah, I can imagine a big cross-country move will do that to you. Yeah, cool. yeah. Not Nothing's of value when you have to move it. <laughs> And pay thousands of dollars to move it. Uh, Aaron was telling me about, uh, my wife was telling me about the, um, this thing called like Swedish death cleaning. Death cleaning. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to screw up the concept here, but I think the general idea is that you look at an item and you determine whether you you basically imagine I, I die tomorrow and my relatives have to deal with this. (laughs) Is this something that they're going to want? Or are they going to look at the, this and say, did my dad really save all of these National Geographics? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, what do we do with this? Do we take it to the library? <laughs> do we give them the goodwill? Yeah. And that, that was... No, you, you, you literally only want to leave your children briefcases of money. <laughs> Everything else is trash. Well, which works out because that's what I collect. <laughs> but they're all, they're all off-site. Please that's don't cover my friends. house. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated question. I, we could devote an entire fucking podcast to that for sure. Just like the pie thing. Yeah, yeah. E- equally nuanced. Indeed. All right. I, I suggest we move on. Mm-hmm. All right. And finally, our showcase of the week. We got Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice, and then Bloodstained, Curse of the Night. Ritual of the Night. Rit God. <laughs> Gosh dang it. <laughs> It's fine. I definitely screwed it up earlier, though. No, because there, sure there's another curse. one. I think that they did that one that was 8-bit, like the 8-bit demake that they released before, which was like Curse of the Moon or... I th- yeah, the, it, that's not... There was something like that. I was so confused by that. That that came out, and I was like, wait, is Bloodstained out now? And I was like, wait, no, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what are you doing? Just people have been waiting for this game forever. Anyway. All right, so... I guess I'll start babbling about Sekiro because I want to. Um, Tell us all about those dying shadows. Sekiro, shadows die twice. So Sekiro, so it's interesting. So the the overview here is that it's sort of set in a feudal Japan setting. See, for a while, the game sort of tricks you into thinking that um, 
that it is like feudal Japan. And then eventually you start fighting like little goblins and monsters. And then there's like magic all about. So I was like, oh, so this, this isn't historical drama. Uh, Sekiro is by the Dark Souls team of From Software of Dark Souls fame and Bloodborne. So there's a lot of hype going into this game. And I, for one, didn't buy into the hype too much because it was so different that I didn't know what to believe. I don't want to say I was poo-pooing it because it wasn't another Dark Souls game. It just seems sort of janky. Look like watching the videos. I don't know if you got that impression. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, I I'm not as big of a Dark Souls and Souls like fan as you are. So I, you know, I saw the games. Oh, okay, cool. I, but I do remember it feel it looking not as polished in early previews. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I can uh, set some of these concerns aside and say that the game actually handles amazingly. And that's one of the best things about the game is it's not janky at all. It's super polished. Uh, the movement's super fluid. Um, the combat is tight and also unique when compared to Dark Souls or Bloodborne. Um, not completely reinvented, obviously. It's still very... It, it shares a lot of similarities with the Soulsborne games. Um, but it, Sekiro really stands on its own. Um, that's really all I got for the overview for the game. Um, so you want to tell us a bit about uh, Bloodstained? Before we do, I've got a, uh, a question that you probably aren't going to have an answer for. Have they come mm -hmm. up with a new term for Soulsborne to include Sekiro in it? <laughs> I really, really hope not, because I didn't even... Because before uh, Bloodborne came out, they were just calling him Souls-like. Mm -hmm. And they still call them Souls-likes and Soulsborn and Soul-esque. And it's just, 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 I, I'm fine with the term Souls-like. A friend of mine used to say Soulsborn a lot. So sometimes that just comes out of nowhere. But Souls-like's good. Okay, one. good. So Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, it, it's the result of the big Kickstarter from a number of years ago by the creator of Castlevania. Because Castlevania is one of those franchises that I believe is a Capcom or is it Konami who in Castlevania? Yeah. Uh, thought it was... Shit, I don't know. Okay. Nope. Well, whoever owns it. Man, I should have done any amount of research on the game that I'm talking about here. <laughs> I, I've got... I, th I think it is Konami now that you said Yeah. It. Okay, so we're, we're going to say it's Konami. It's been so long since a new game came out in that And franchise. that's where you I was, where I was going with it. Like with Mega Man and Silent Hill, yeah. this is just a franchise that some company is sitting on and not actually doing anything with. And so like with Mega Man and not with Silent Hill, but with Mega Man, they went to Kickstarter and said, hey, I would like to make another game that is exactly like that, but legally distinct so I don't get sued. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially what they've done. <laughs> they've made a Castlevania game, which is not Castlevania, um, where you're going to a big spooky castle that's not Dracula's castle. And you're going to fight a big bad guy that isn't Dracula, even though Dracula isn't owned by Konami. That's just you know, anyone can use Dracula. But anyways, you know. It's not that you are not a vampire hunter. You're a, I want to say a shard binder might be the term for it. Shard binder. Yeah, that's um one of the things. Did you ever play any of the Castlevania games for the DS or the uh, Game Boy Advanced? Mm, no, I don't think so. So in the Aria and Dawn of Sorrows games, the one was Game Boy. Aria Sorrows got Game Boy, and Dawn of Sorrows was DS. The idea was you would kill enemies and then you would absorb their soul and it would be a, something that you could equip and it would give you different abilities or different buffs or allow you to traverse the level in different ways. This 
takes that same idea, but instead the, them being souls, they're shards, and you are a shard binder that or shard stealer or something like that that takes the the shards of enemies that die not souls that's legally different and you absorb them <laughs> and you can equip them and then go around this big castle exploring and killing things and slowly leveling your way up until you uh, unlock all the areas and find all the abilities and make your way to the big bad at the end and then kill them uh, very if you've played a castlevania game since symphony symphony of the night or a metroidvania game that's very castlevania-esque this is a lot like that. If you played Strider, Shadow Complex, it's a lot like that, but not Castlevania. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm excited to play it too, so i excited to hear what you have to say for cool. it. Cool. Yeah, that it's it takes place, you know, a lot of the enemies are very similar to, but not Castlevania enemies. It has mm. the Medusa heads, but it calls them something else. It's got <laughs> you know, it's got the essentially the skeletons that throw bones at you. A lot of nods to existing things, and wouldn't you know it? Shovel Knight's in it too, because what the, what? yeah, I, I, you're not allowed to make an indie game without putting it putting Shovel Knight or Meat Boy in it legally. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um. Yeah, so so we're we're tinkering with the format a little bit this week. Uh, we didn't introduce it earlier because uh, we we keep messing with it. Because it's none it's of your business, mate. It's not none of your damn business. Um, it's it's just not news at this point. We're still early on in the podcast, so so just 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 roll with the punches here. Uh, we're introducing new talking points, as I'm calling them right now. Since we're not doing straight from the developers anymore, handed to us straight from the developers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep, they they forced us to say all of this. We are definitely we definitely don't have to pay for all of these. Oh man, give us free games, guys. <laughs> We're so poor. Anyway, yeah. So we got we have new talking points. Are these points are going to be the definitive mechanic for the game, worst design choice, best moment, and who is this game for? We'll start off by just uh, probably is all self explanatory. So we'll just jump into it. Sekiro, definitive mechanic. Um, most of you are probably well, most of you. Some of you are probably familiar with the fact that the whole game sort of based around the fact that uh, the main character only has one arm and ha- he has a prosthetic. This is introduced pretty early in the story and was used for the marketing for the game. I actually didn't um, know that, was- so that's interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. When it, when it was first announced, you see this like bound disgusting bloody prosthetic arm and that's all you saw for like the first year of development um but i i think it's safe to say that it is the definitive mechanic because so much of the game um works around it uh it, it is it is very much a, a souls-like game and that you are collecting you know i forget i don't even know what it's called in this game i just keep saying souls but it's not called souls Something is else. It, oh wait, you just get money. Is it off shards. Of people. Oh, you get money experience. Okay. That's all you get off people. Experience you can use for buying skills, and money you can use for buying prosthetics. A lot of times, or stuff that improves you in some way. Also, items just like in Dark Souls. Um, but you can buy some prosthetics. You have to earn a lot of the prosthetics. But the definitive mechanic is just complete. Is just your your arm. It it changes up the game in so many ways, especially when comparing it to like a Souls-like game. Um, it introduces mobility, 
um, which when I say mobility and then say souls like in the same sentence, some some fanboys slap me in the face. But the game's been out for a while now, so they probably are aware of what the situation is. Um, but one of the things that I was really worried about going into this game was that they kept showing off like the mobility and the hooking from here and there and the jumping around and stuff. And I was like, this is like <laughs> from software. It, they're not in my eyes. They're not a re- renowned ninja game developer. So I didn't have a lot of faith that they were going to nail it. But I must say, Jesus, the mobility in this game is fantastic. One of the like just hooking around, which you can do in some boss fights and get out of some boss fights and just avoid enemies like you really feel like a ninja as you're just when, slingshotting through trees and chaining them back and when forth. When you say hooking around, do you got like like a, a hook on a chain? Is it like a like a hook shot? Can you describe it's, what this hooking is like? It's it comes out of your arm. It's yeah, it's like a rope. It's a hook hook rope. Hook, hook shot is probably the closest thing. But it's it's some sort of slinging device. I don't really go into much detail. It's it's just one of the default things on your prosthetic, not one of the upgradable things or anything. But they they implement it sparingly in combat, but a ton of the actual move moving around and levels and platforming and like even some not puzzles, but like hidden areas are completely around how well you can sling around and maneuver around like cliff edges and stuff with the slinging and stuff. And on top of that, obviously have the the actual interchangeable prosthetics. The game allows you to have three different prosthetic uh, upgrades at any time. Okay. Um, so for example, I, th- I think at the point in the point about like three quarters of the way through the game, you have something like nine or 10 that you can switch through. Um, at any given time, you can switch between them on the fly. You don't need to be at a, a base point um, in that game. They're like Buddha statues. Switch between the three or switch between the 12? You have three set on you at any time. Oh, okay. which you can switch, interchange in the menus. But they can they range from, you know, like fireworks and flamethrowers to um, like shadow dodges, where if you dodge or you parry at the correct time, you shadow blast behind someone and then you can like do critical hits on. No, them. Is this when the shadows so, die? The shadows never die. No. Mm, well, that's not what I've heard. Well, how we'll have to define the word die at some point. But, <laughs> but I mean, all around, so all around, they did a fantastic job of designing the entire game around this one sort of concept that you're this ninja and you have a prosthetic arm and it's basically like a ninja on roids where you just have not, I got almost superpowers basically because you have an entirely entire new set of abilities. The game does a good job of making you feel like a bitch at all times, too, just like all the Souls games. Um, so the prosthetics not it, it may sound like having a flamethrower or a shadow dodge or like a murder axe would actually be like cheating. It does a little um, bit, but you have you have limited uses. So on bosses, 
you, you can use them up easily before the boss is even half dead. And then you, you have to figure out how to actually beat a boss without these items. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, and again, the game isn't completely revolving around this one mechanic, but it does sort of set the tone for the game. It, it makes it sort of an escalated ninja experience, like I said. And I really think that it made it unique to the Souls games and also still like very fun. Like I thought them deviating away from again, I think I said this twice already, but I thought they were going to deviate too far away into a category that they didn't like. They just just winging it, just throwing in new mechanics and hoping for the best, because a lot of times I wonder if that's sort of what happened with the Souls like games, like all the Souls games, even starting with Demon Souls. Like, did did they really know that this was going to be a hit or were they just like hoping for the best? Because <laughs> it's it it's and there's such unique games that it's almost hard to predict how the market's going to react to it. So they just made a game and it turned out to be a, you know, genre defying game. Well, there, but, there's um, something to be said yeah. for just making a game and doing it extremely well. Just far as yeah, like and polishing the hell out of it. Absolutely. And I think if Sekiro did anything, it showed me that From is a, an elite developer that absolutely knows what they're doing. And it's not just them tinkering with the same formula that they got lucky with in the first place. They know how to polish games. They know how to make unique experiences, even if they're in the same engine and they have some of the same concepts. But yeah. I'll, I'll throw it off to you. What would the defining definitive mechanic be for Bloodstain? That's really tough because I don't think there's a lot new in Bloodstained. I think, I think hmm. it's the most definitive design choice that they made or the most definitive thing was just making it as similar to previous Castlevania games as possible. Because like the, hmm. the mechanic of soul bi- or shard binding, excuse me, shard binding, not souls is the thing that that kind of informs all of the gameplay. You run around, you kill things, you grind them, and then there's a chance for, I believe, just about everything you kill, that it will release its shard and you will absorb it. And your main character of Miriam will let out this scream that gets irritating after a while as she absorbs the soul, and it, or shard, absorbs the shard, and it becomes a part <laughs> of her and she can now summon frogs to throw at people or shoot out a spinning drill thing of her hand that you point at or use a laser kind of thing or eat blood like spoilers for all those abilities by the way they're all things that yeah they're all things that are are in there but that's just kind of the general mechanics of it are a castlevania game and not necessarily even a metroidvania but really specifically the castlevania games as of late, the DS ones, the, the Game Boy Advance ones, Symphony of the Night, those style of Castlevania game. So the the definitive mechanic is just that. Like, There's a lot of other stuff. Just that it's not the definitive experience? Well, it, well, it is. It, it is a definitive experience in that it, it's taken all the things of other Castlevania games and kind of thrown it together. So like, if you needed to know what... What does playing a castle game, venue game feel like other than the 
kind of 3D 2D, whatever you call that, where it's, you know, it's a 3D game or it's a rendered in 3D, but it's technically a 2D game, hmm. which I don't think just just it's just a 2D game that's rendered. 3D. Yeah, I think you nailed yeah, it. Yeah, OK, so that um, I don't think it works as well. I, I think the, the chunky graphics work better for Castlevania. But that's just my own personal opinion. Um, yeah, it, it's defined by how Castlevania it is. And how much you can absorb people's soul shards. <laughs> it's yeah, unfortunately there's not a uh, not the best game to talk about a definitive mechanic on. Yeah, I mean, uh, so what what would make it definitively Castlevania in that sense? Well, um, you're you know, it's that kind of Metroidvania formula of you're exploring a large area that unfolds as you defeat bosses and gain abilities to access new areas. So you, you gain a double jump and now you can access areas that you couldn't access before. And you can find secrets and items that are hidden around because you didn't, you previously didn't have the ability to melt ice and now you can melt ice and get to the area that's behind the ice, things like that. Uh, and then you run around you hit stuff or shoot stuff or stab stuff or hit it with a club, with an ax, with a whip, all your basic melee weapons and guns, weirdly. And uh, eventually, you... and the game's over. Spoiler! Oh, and you, you know what? It actually, uh, something that, the thing that, that is kind of definitive of it that, um, that, that stands out from other Metroidvania games is they do this thing, and I, I think most of the modern Castlevanias do this, where you get to like a halfway point and you fight a boss and you kill him, but then you lose because you weren't supposed to kill him. You're supposed to save him. And huh? so like, oh, like I think in, in Dawn of Sorrow, he was possessed by a demon. And so you could fight him. But again, spoilers for Dawn of Sorrow, if you're concerned, you could fight him. But the way to really move past that point was to use an ability where you could jump into the mirror and go into the mirror dimension and kill the demon that was inhabiting his body. And then when you did that, then you've saved him and the game continues on beyond that point. Whoa. So you have this kind of like a halfway point false ending and false final hmm. boss battle where you can potentially win the game, but also end the game, but lose because you, you just fought the guy straight out and didn't use your noodle to figure out the secret way to fight him. Which is usually delivered by uh, just general text from talking to people. Hmm. Uh, the, the few NPCs that are in town. That's kind of it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very Castlevania experience. All right. Well, then we'll segue into the next section. Uh, worst design choice. Um, so we're going to try and blend, uh, get, a, get a nice balance of positivity and negativity mm-hmm. um going so we'll, we'll jump from from that to what we didn't like about the game essentially um my least favorite thing in the game was that Sekiro for the first time in recent from games memory allowed you to escape boss battles like a you'd think a ninja would be able to do right yeah well you can only do it for like 60% of the fights. Oh, like the major fights too. 
So it's, it's something that they introduced and you're like, wow, this is actually really cool. Like I, I, I know the games are supposed to be hard and I'm supposed to die sometimes, but I, this makes me feel more like a, a dope ninja that I can just hook shot the fuck up a tree and run away. And the guy's like, I can't do that. That dude's gone. Makes sense. <laughs> like it's, I, I feel like a, a ninja would know when to have a strategic retreat. Right. Well, the other 40% of the fights, you had just have a, a fog wall or a, an invisible wall like like you did in the Souls games. Oh. It's like, what what the fuck? <laughs> like, now I don't feel cool at all. I feel like there's just some unknown magic here. and like just You're a super cool ninja but, ninja, but now you're too scared to leave. <laughs> Not, now you're too scared to run through the fog because fog's scary. Oh, it's so spooky. Yeah. So I think that's the one thing that annoyed me. Um, obviously I got aggravated, aggravated with boss fights. The game is still very hard for people that kept up with the soul series. Very challenging game. Um, that's something you go in expecting, but the, the, the single design choice that I was like, what the fuck were they doing? Was that is not being able to always escape battle. Like if, if they just said, or not said if they just never allowed it from the onset, I wouldn't have even batted an eye. The fact that they added it and I was like, this is dope. I'm glad they added this. And then later when I would get to slightly more major fights that were equally as um, on the main story, like you, you still had to do them, but some of them were just gated. <laughs> so it wasn't like God you could, it. it wasn't like you could skip side quest bosses or leave side quest bosses, but not main quest bosses. Yeah, right. Like there's 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 very minor bosses that you can skip almost all of. And then there's like minor bosses that you can skip some of. And then there's major bosses that you just can't skip. One of them's just straight up on a rooftop. And there's no there's clearly no barrier because it would look the the it would destroy the entire vibe of being on the top of a castle fighting this like samurai bro if it was just fog wall surrounding the entire room <laughs> right but you literally there's a, like a, a two foot high wooden wall that you can't jump over because there's an invisible barrier around it to escape oh which you would think hey i'm on a rooftop i'm a motherfucking ninja <laughs> i can do what i want yeah you're a ninja That's you're a ninja with a magic hook yeah so in, in the grand scheme of th- magical, yeah, exactly. In the grand scheme of things, like did did it spoil the game for me? Absolutely not. Did it completely befuddle me as to why they did this? Sometimes, like I understood why they did it, but I still thought it was really cheesy. Yeah, that that is kind of. It reminds me of the the whole problem, like the with uh, Deus Ex: Human Revolution. Like where they they had all those stealth mechanics, but then all of their boss fights were geared around uh, aggro, killing them. Yeah. yeah. So it was just yeah. Oh yeah, all these stealth mechanics we introduced to you, you can't use here. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I, I played through the game stealth, and the benefit of playing stealth is you have a trash ton of ammo in each of the bosses. <laughs> and and well, after <laughs> you, after you learn your lesson from the first one, you uh, actually might take a one or two aggro related skills. <laughs> that is the worst part. <laughs> the boss fights aren't that easy either. No, they're not. Hmm. Anyway, 
All right. What would you say the worst design choice is in Bloodstained? Um, in general, just all of the boss battles are really oh. underwhelming. Like, I like Castlevania games. I, I want to make that clear. I enjoy them quite a bit. I've played a lot of them. I even really enjoyed Lords of Shadow 1 and 2. I had fun with those. And 2. And, yeah, and 2. It's got Patrick Stewart. He was, he was, he was pretty good. Uh, but I... The, the boss battles in this were just really underwhelming. So many of them were just, you're in a room with a dude. And, some, and the room is sometimes the width of your screen. Sometimes it's wider than your screen. Never taller than your screen, because that's insane. Can't do that. Can't have a room that's taller than your screen in a boss battle. I don't know why, they just didn't. And I just was baffled at how uninteresting these boss battles were, because... I'll tell you, there are a ton of different shards, almost said souls again, shards and weapons that you can get. (laughs) And a lot of different approaches, and they talk about different damage types. I went into every boss battle. This is one of those games where they make it seem like there's a lot of strategy that goes into picking your weapons and your offense and your defense. But in reality, if you just go into the boss battle with, with... 12 potions you win because it's just like they just oh, okay i right, took some damage. all right you potion 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 all right just keep doing more damage and mm. in a lot of the cases you don't even have to learn their patterns because their patterns don't the patterns just do damage they don't incapacitate you or inconvenience you or move you in any way because yeah. you're just fighting a dude on the ground it's not like I mean, it's not like even Sonic, where you have to figure out how to get up to the weak point to hit it. It's just a dude on the ground, so just get near him and hit him, or hit him with one of the ranged weapons. It was just very disappointing, and I know that it doesn't have to be that way, because it's not that way in a lot of the other Castlevania games. They have interesting boss battles that take place in huge rooms, or have weird... Uh, weird weak points. One of the ones I think in, I don't remember if it was Dawn of Sorrow or Portrait of Ruined, was a, basically a giant ball of people. Like it was just, yeah, I mean, it was just like a big ball of people, and you would hit it, and it would like pieces of the uh, bodies were falling off of this giant ball of people that was attacking uh, you. Like it was a really cool boss battle, and it was something I remember, even though I haven't played that game in you know five six years. But these were all just really boring and uninteresting. They, they just, you just get in there and you hit it. You just jump and hit, man. Yeah, that's a shame. It, it, it was. In a lot of cases, they're supposed to be like, prove that you've learned how to use your abilities up to this point. So like we, in the, la- the last boss battle, unlock double jump. That's going to be pretty critical to killing this new boss. Yeah. You know, they, they, where there's actually some kind of like comprehension test of the game. But this, the final boss battle, the last five or six boss battles, other than one that requires a specific weapon, just for story purposes, the last five or six boss battles, I fought with the same weapon and same we- uh, weapon set and oh, armor set. It just, yeah. for a game that had tons of weapons and armor, it just didn't make use of them well enough. Yeah. I just that's, that's usually when I become disappointed with the game too. It's like I've I've found my optimal skill set 
you've given me no reason to change this. I will now beat this game. And it wasn't even like this the set I had was the best. It was just good it was enough. Just good enough. Yeah. And I, yeah, I had gotten the worst. I had gotten used to using this one spear and it, the attack I had gotten used to the attack range and the speed of it. And I had gotten actually I think in the final battle because you, you have a couple of different types of abilities. You have one that's that uh, you aim with the right stick and use the trigger to activate and one that you just call with um, with the Y button. Yeah. And I think in the last battle, I didn't use my aimed ability at all. And I feel like a final oh. battle should really like tax everything about you. Yes. But I'm not great at games by any, any stretch of the imagination. And I beat the final boss on my second try. Mm. And I wasn't playing on so, easy. It just was kind of just go buy a bunch of potions and then yeah. take them. Yeah. So this is this is an interesting point because this is sort of why we wanted to do uh do the categories this way now um because I can directly relate that to Sekiro now. Mm-hmm. Sekiro's design was very much around how leading up to a boss you would sort of learn about some of its advantages and disadvantages. This would happen more early on than in the game. Later on, it trails off and you have to sort of figure it out the hard way. Um, but early on, you'd sort of find guys talking around and saying things like, oh man, his glowing red eyes, like he's probably susceptible to blah, blah, blah. Or can you believe that they they have that beast? Like it's a good thing we have these blah, blah, blah to deal with it and make it easier to you know, harness or stuff, stuff. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then 10 minutes later, you'll find a prosthetic that you can hook in and then you have a direct means of making turning the fight from completely unreasonably hard to just regular hard. Uh, Any of these bosses can be done without any sort of prosthetics, but there's ways to make them, you know, five death bosses instead of 20 death bosses, essentially. Oh, that sounds nice. I would have liked that in this game. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, so Sekiro does a really good job of forcing you to think about which prosthetics are good or bad in boss fights. Um, this definitely trails off later on, but because the game's so hard, you still take pause and say, shit, should I reconsider how my prosthetics are assembled? Like, would this help me? And there was a few bosses later on in the game that I wouldn't have never, like prosthetics that I had never used a single time and didn't sound useful for any scenario and didn't even after dying to the boss five times didn't sound like they'd be useful. I would then go and just try out and they'd work like a charm, like the, the shadow dodge, for example, one, one fight about midway through the game is just a pure mono, a mono sword on sword, bro, bro battle. And the easiest way to deal with it because he does like a double strike is use that shadow dodge that I mentioned earlier. And if you parry at the right time, you shadow dodge behind him and you find after doing this, that he's really slow to turn around, which is not usually the case with humans. Like they turn around really quick. Like beasts are usually slower. Okay. But this guy is just like, huh? What? And so if you were behind him, you can get a full combo off. 
So I went from getting absolutely dumpstered by this guy to killing him in my second try while using this prosthetic. Yeah, that none of that was. I would have loved something like that in in this uh, bloodstained game. I would have loved that yeah. kind of feeling, like, oh, okay, this is where I use that. I think I I ended the game other than testing them out when you first get them, having only actually used primarily 10 or 11 of the abilities and you get tons. It's not that many. You just get tons of them. A lot of them. I don't even like dozens, hundreds, dozens, dozens upon easily 50, 60, 70 of them. Okay. I I don't know the exact amount. I definitely didn't get all of them because it's, it's a random, it's a random drop. Like you're not guaranteed to get them. Oh, Oh, this was, this is just a horrible design choice. Cause some of the, the little like puzzle type things that you have to figure out were horribly designed. And one of them is to, there's a whole section of the game of, of the map that's underwater, but you can't swim. You have to get an ability that'll let you swim. They don't tell you any of this, but in one, there's an uh... enemy in one room that sometimes releases a soul up shard that lets you swim. But I don't, maybe I missed that piece of dialogue where it tells you to go farm those things. But if you went down into that area and said, oh, okay, I can't swim. Um, shit, I gotta figure out how to swim. Okay, I'm gonna leave here. And then you leave there to go find the swimming ability. Unless you went back there, like you wouldn't think to go back there because you can't because you can't swim. Why would you go over there? Yeah, yeah, that's corny. So that's something you'd expect from an MMO or something. Yeah, like there's just nothing. Uh, especially if you're reliant on drop rates. Like with the Metroidvania, you kill a boss, you get a new ability, or you find a room, a secret room, you unlock an ability. And that was it. Every other map traversal ability was given to you at a set point. Like here is the, here is the altar you walk up to that you get it. Or here's the boss that you kill that gives it to you. And in previous Castlevania games I've played, it was a, you go into a room, you fight the fish boss, you get the swing around ability. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know (laughs) what the justification for that would be. Yeah. That's, that's the type of thing that makes, you know, 50% of people drop off and never play the game again and say that game is stupid. Yeah. Which I would, I, there are a couple of points in the game that I could see people just saying like, well, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do. And this game is giving me no indication. I'm done. Yeah. 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 And it's, that's not something where it's, I didn't look hard enough. I didn't look around hard enough. It's just, I didn't kill the enemy enough times. Yeah. How would you ever know to even kill that? enemy? what if you sat there for an hour, got unlucky with drops, didn't drop. And you're like, well, what am I doing? This is dumb. Yep. Just very poor decision. Yeah. No, that's corny, especially for a Metroidvania. It sounds corny. All right. What's our next talking point? Um, yeah, we're getting in on time, so we have two more um, best moments uh, in in your experience. And who is this game for? I'm going to combo mine back to back just to usher us through the time. Um, so my favorite moment was sort of the it, it was sort of um, the concentration of what I really like about Sekiro, and it's maybe the the corniest fight in the entire game. 
Um, maybe I liked it because it was unique. Maybe I liked it because it forced me to learn um, in new ways that I had chosen not to learn before. But there's a fight in the game that's essentially just just giant Valdo from Soul Calibur. <laughs> his name his name is giraffe centipede something or other and he's humanoid on all fours covered in chains and bandages and all sorts of shit please google this thing it's a monstrosity i've shown all of my friends this guy um and he's got claws for hands and you just walk down into this unassuming tiny room nowhere to jump around in this game you get a lot of like big rooms Good, good enough for jumping around. Um, you can jump off walls and stuff traditionally. Um, just, just stuff that makes you feel like a cool ninja. This fight doesn't give a shit about any of that, that bullshit. <laughs> it's just fucking... You're in a 10 by 10 room with this creature that's twice your size. And he is just an onslaught of attacks. He just keeps attacking. And you can't just block them because there's a stamina gauge in the game so if you block instead of parrying you're taking stamina and if you take too much stamina damage then you fall to the ground and can be just fucking critically hit basically Ooh. um this is this is something that also happens to all enemies so in this fight the idea is that you have to parry all of his attacks to make his stamina gauge go down because you can never possibly do damage to him in the capacity that it would take to kill him because he never stops attacking for more than three seconds. Oh, Not three seconds, a long time, maybe one second. Um, so even if you're parrying each of the attacks, he keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and then he'll change it up and he'll throw like a, a leg sweep that you have to dodge by leaping up in the air instead of blocking. You can't block it. Um, and stuff like that. So at, up until that point in the game, this is maybe a third of the way, maybe a little bit further into the game. Um, I had just opted not to parry that much. I would I would block a good amount of times, but parrying was just like I, I don't need to be that good at timing to beat these bosses. Right. None, none of their none of their abilities require me to parry. I did, I, I played all the Souls games dodging primarily i never played with a shield because i just didn't need to learn how to use it and i like i like dodging there's something called invulnerability frames in these games where if you dodge the right amount of time you just don't take damage so becoming a master of the iframe is a very real mechanic that people have to learn or don't have to learn depending on their play style but that's the one i chose to learn this fight told me that everything I knew was a lie and I better <laughs> learn how to motherfucking parry right now or everything <laughs> everything I want to do in the game is going to come to an end. So it's not a long fight. It's not far from a, a Buddha statue. You literally just run down, you know, 30 feet and he's just there. Probably killed me the most out of any boss in the game. Maybe 20 times. For the first 10 times, I assumed that the boss was impossible and they had put this game it in as a joke. And then you figure it out. You figure out you have to parry every single one of his 20 hit combos perfectly. And then you have to dodge his last hit. And if you do it, 
and you learn how to do this all correctly, you feel like a fucking god. And it's maybe this is just this is probably subjective for me because, again, I didn't parry in the old games. I didn't parry in this game very much. But the game told me I had to learn how to fucking parry and it gave me gave me the crash course in parrying, <laughs> which was his boss. And at the at, like I said, at the beginning, I was like, I'm never going to do this. And maybe an hour and a half later, after 20 plus deaths, I, I got it. Parried every single one of his abilities, did maybe three damage to him, but I got his stamina counter down and I just one just one shot at him. And you have to do that two times. In the second phase, he also has new combos, which is are even more wild. But if you get to the second phase, you've basically already beaten the fight because you know what to expect from this fight. Right, right. So I, I think that that's just what I really love about the franchise is that every once in a while it turns everything on your head. Um, I, I There's some fights in the Souls games that you just you can't play the same way that you've been playing. No matter how good you get at one play style, you have to pick up some new tricks along the way. It's not always about learning attack patterns. Um, you have to, you have to learn some of the other mechanics too. See, all that and, sounds really good and sounds something I would have liked in my game. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the segues into who, who is this game for our last talking point? This game is for people that can really, really stand a beating. Um, braver people than I. This is, to me, because I played the old games dodging, it was probably the hardest of the games. Most people, when it came out, said it's not a real Souls game because it's not that hard, but it's not a Souls game. And it's still very hard, and the difficulty is subjective. Um, so I, I thought it was the hardest no, Bloodborne's way harder. But <laughs> neither here nor there. For me, per, again, for me personally, Bloodborne was a lot harder. I didn't even get that far in that game. The game is Bukaki Storm for me. Um, but people, people really like a challenge. People that like the Souls games don't go into this thinking it's another Souls game. But this game still very much is for that type of gamer. Um, it's a really tight experience. There's no. There's no difficulty levels, so people like I can't sell this to people who would be turned on by that that ninja stealth experience. Because while the game does still have it, you still have to get through really, really challenging fights to experience all of that. So, yeah, take take everything not with a grain of salt, but with with that in mind that you you can't just walk in and have your own unique experience with this game. It's a very much a tailor made game for people that like challenges. And that's it. Fair enough. Uh, I would say that um, I think my my favorite moments in the game were getting new weapons and just getting to try them out and realizing that there was a whole a whole range of different ammo that you could craft and get and use to. Uh, as your ammo, almost like the different ammo types in what the hell's the name of that game? Monster Hunter World. We yeah. get the explosive and the piercing and the shred, you know, all the other different types of damage, which were fun to play around with with the different guns in the game. I, I really mm. enjoyed that. And I, it's a really fun game. There's a lot of really good areas and, and set pieces in it, but it's not really a game of moments. 
you know, it's not these Metroidvania games usually aren't. They're just kind of. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair to an extent, but I can I can definitely think of best moments in several Metroidvania games for me. So I don't know if that speaks to the overall experience in that game or not, but I, you know what? I think it does a little bit. I think there is something to be said for it. You know, it, it does not have some of the same. Oh, uh, well, how many of those moments that you're thinking of were boss battles? Um, it's the first two games I thought of were hollow Knight again, and then Ori and Ori was not, it was story based and I don't want to ruin that. Yep. Um, and Hollow Knight was. It's when you fight, uh, I think her name is Silk, who's the star of the second game. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, those, so, are, yeah, yeah. those are memorable. Um, yeah, so I guess this game, did, I don't think, had a lot of memorable moments in it. I remember beating the game. I remember a couple of uh, the slightly harder boss fights. They have these kind of like challenge bosses that you don't need to beat to beat the game. Hmm. but you can beat them to kind of unlock other areas. There's a, a carpenter and oh yeah, you know what here spoilers for one of the boss battles. There was one interesting thing that one of the things that one of the boss fights had, you had a carpenter that you would fight and he, he worked, fight him in his workshop and he's got like a table saw and everything like that. Very thematic. And in the middle of the fight, he will stop to build something like a chest <laughs> And if you fight him while he's building things, he summons demons with really high HP. But if you let him finish building it, he doesn't. Interesting. And fig- that's very cool. Figuring that out was really interesting. When when I accidentally just you know stepped away, I was like, oh, he's building this. I'll take this moment to you know heal up some of my damage. And then realizing, yeah. oh, he he didn't summon one of those demons. Oh, cool. And then like, piecing that together was neat. That was an interesting moment, mm. and that was a that was a fun moment in a boss battle. Because I don't think I would have it would have taken me a number more tries to beat that battle had I not realized that I could just not fight the demons as well, and have them not show up at all. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. I'll give it oh, that. Because cool. it is a good game. It is. A, it is a very fun. I had a good time playing it. Um, I don't regret the time. It, it, it did, at no point felt like I I was slogging through because i just had to beat it so we could talk about it you know mm-hmm. this was a i had a good time playing it after i played it i actually considered starting a new game plus uh but i don't you know i was gonna say i don't think that you know i, I wouldn't recommend this to castlevania fans because i feel like it's a, it's a bit of a step down but i think i'm in the minority there because it's overwhelmingly positive reviews across every every place i've looked Everyone loves this game. Castlevania fans, new fans to the series, people who've never played a Metroidvania before. Mm. So I think I, if you if you like Metroidvanias, you like Castlevania. I, you're probably gonna like this game. It does it all well. I think maybe I'm just I'm just too much of a grump. <laughs> so the core audience is similar to Sekiro's, where it's like already the built-in audience. Yeah, I, I think that and the core audience is really gonna enjoy this. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so let's rank these bad boys. Um, oh yeah, the the rankings. I almost forgot about that part. <laughs> uh, I g- gave it a little bit of thought already, and I think if you think that Superland is your favorite game of the year, I think I might put Sekiro 
just beneath Superland. Okay. I think that works. Uh, so that would put it at I would put it at a fourth. Okay. Um, then I would probably put Bloodstained. You know, I would actually put it uh, right below Yoshi's Crafted World. So I would put it at sixth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think, yeah, all right, so. I, I think I had, uh, yeah, I, I think I would put that right there. Cause I think it's, I think it's more of a cohesive experience than void bastards or Anthem were. Yeah. I think that's very fair to say. Yeah. So that puts both these games in the, the top 50 percentile, which is uh, good. That means we both played good games this week. I think so. I think we did. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's sign the fuck out of here because we are running late. Yeah, uh, th- that leaves us to thank our uh, all of you guys for listening. Our producer, DeVry, for all the hard work that she does in, in getting us mm-hmm. on task and, and recorded and edited. Yeah, and giving us the harsh feedback that we desperately need. Yes. Yeah, any, any feedback you guys have, feel free to reach out directly to us. I'm at Arcadia, A-R-K-E-Y-D-I-A on every possible platform. I am at Solitalker, which is S-O-L-I-T-A-L-K-E-R on Twitter. Um, don't look for me on other yeah. platforms. Just stick, just stick there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, obviously follow, like, subscribe the the Game Off podcast at Game Off Podcast on every possible platform because you know that that's how we know people are enjoying it. Like, that's what keeps us waking up in the morning because it's it's not our jobs. Our jobs don't keep us going. No, it's this. No, it's definitely it's a hundred percent this. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been episode eight. Uh, I'm Brent. I'm Andrew. All right. See you later. 